Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today uh, we're once again going to talk about some uh, Brooklyn legacy, some National League Baseball legacy, and I have on the line a Brooklyn native, site editor of RisingApple.com, Danny Abriano. Danny, how are you doing today? Great, Sam. How are you doing? Well, both of you and I are going to be a little distracted. There's a, quite the exhibition going on between the Mets and, and the, the Blue Jays up in Montreal. It's a fun weekend that Montreal is clearly just taking in. And I, I you know, last night, uh, we'll start with this, actually. Last night, I actually thought to myself, what would have happened had there ever been an exhibition in Brooklyn? Uh, you know, I, I could the way that they come out for the minor league team, I could see them uh, uh, doing the same thing for any team that would come and playing an exhibition in Brooklyn. Yeah, I actually have thought about this a few times, and I think it would be incredible. Um, I mean, the place fits about 6,500, I think, so it would definitely sell out very, very quickly. But it's something that I think would be amazing for the borough. I mean, the Cyclones are incredible as it is. So every time the Mets have somebody rehab there, they've had uh, guys rehab there in the past, Jose Reyes, for one. And that becomes an event unto itself. So if they had an actual major league game there, it would be just incredible. I, I, I've, been, I've said to people that there's probably no minor league atmosphere like the Brooklyn baseball atmosphere in, uh, at, at uh, MCU Park. I mean, I mean, you have a major league crowd there in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, passion and, you know, the, the energy that is generated, uh, you know, just 8,000 people is certainly a major league crowd. Right. I mean, from I haven't been to many minor league parks, but from what I've seen, I go to games every year, multiple games every year in Brooklyn to watch the Cyclones play, and they have diehard fans. I mean, most, most teams have fans that show up that are fans of the affiliate or just there to enjoy the game, but if you go to a Cyclones game, there are chants going on all game, people who are passionate, people who are into it, and, you know, it's, it's great to see. And a lot of these people are, I guess, old-timers, more in the 60s, 70s, but then mm-hmm. there's also younger people who love the Cyclones. And, you know, ever since they came into existence, it was 13 years ago. It's just been, it's been great for the borough, great for Coney Island specifically. And uh, it's, it's continuing, and it's really, really, really nice to see. I saw a movie this morning, and on my way out, I saw somebody in a Cyclones jacket. Uh, fortuitously, and I, of course, had to say nice jacket to them. And so let's, uh, you know, trans- transition over to your Brooklyn roots. Uh, tell us about your Brooklyn roots. And, and real quickly, um, I, I'm a, I am a little distracted by that play at the plate. I know you're watching, Danny, and many people might be watching uh, the Mets, but that was, uh, that was quite the play at the plate before you talk about your Brooklyn roots. Yeah, I'll touch on the play at the plate for a half a second before that. It was a perfect relay. And Darno received it and didn't get himself in harm's way, didn't break any of the new rules that are kind of strange. And, uh, yeah, Ice K got hit hard, but they got out of the inning. Um, but, yeah, as far as Brooklyn, I was born and raised in Brooklyn in the Bay Ridge neighborhood, which for those people who may not know exactly where Bay Ridge is, it's between Diker Heights and Bensonhurst. Also, the easiest way to know where Bay Ridge is is to say it's the neighborhood from Saturday Night Fever, or the neighborhood that's right by the Verrazano Bridge. And I was there until I was about nine, and then I moved to Diker Heights, which is seven avenues away. And I lived there until 
I graduated high school, and then I took an unfortunate, uh, an unfortunate sabbatical in Staten Island while I went to college, and came back two years ago to Brooklyn, right by where I used to live in Diker Heights, and now I'm even closer. I'm living two blocks away from where I used to live in Diker Heights. So Brooklyn is in my blood. It's something that when I was living on Staten Island, if anybody moves from Brooklyn to Staten Island, they understand that the feeling of community you have in Brooklyn is just not the same anywhere else. And ever since I moved out to Staten Island, I yearned to get back. And when I got back two years ago, it was just, it was just tremendous to, to have the, the sense of community, the sense of closeness to all the people I grew up with, and just the familiarity with the neighborhoods that I was born and raised in. So in terms of, in terms of legacy, how long has your family uh, been in Brooklyn? My family has been here since the 30s. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1913, and in the specific area of Brooklyn where we are now, um, they moved here, I guess, uh, in the 70s, but they used to live in Windsor Terrace. And Windsor Terrace was turned into a hole, partially, because of the Gowanus Expressway. And that's where they lived back in the 30s, back in the 40s, and I think into the 50s before the Gowanus um, became a highway, and it took out a huge, huge chunk of residential uh, areas that people lived in. And if you go down there now, the property values are through the roof. So that's something that kind of, kind of sucks that that happened. But they grew up there. My father was born, and they still lived in Windsor Terrace. And then after that, they moved to East 2nd Street, uh, which is kind of near Bishop Ford High School. And... As they got older, in the 80s, they moved to Bay Ridge to be closer to us. And then when my father moved out to Staten Island, they went out to Staten Island with him. But my grandparents lived in Brooklyn uh, for close to 70 years. So, yes, it's, it's in their blood, it's in my father's blood, it's in my blood, and it's uh, very dear to my heart. So when it comes to baseball, uh, would you say that you got uh, that love of the game from your grandfather? Absolutely. I mean, my, my father is a Mets fan, but he's not, he's not a diehard. He's not somebody who lives and dies with the team. That's not to say he's fair weather. There's a, there's a big difference between somebody who's diehard, somebody who's a serious fan, somebody who's fair weather. And my grandfather was an absolute diehard Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And he's somebody, my grandmother used to say, that he could be sitting there watching the game. And if the roof collapsed and fell down on him, he would still be sitting there watching the game. His intensity while he watched the game was insane. And he was somebody who was very, very soft-spoken, but he was the most reliable person ever. So if there was a Met game on, he was in front of the TV watching it. And before the Mets, if there was a Dodger game on, he was either at the game, in front of the TV watching it, or listening on the radio. And he had such a loyalty for the Dodgers that during World War II, he was actually in Hawaii with Joe DiMaggio. And Joe DiMaggio was one of his barracks mates. And he's got autographs of Joe DiMaggio. He's got pictures from Hawaii where Joe DiMaggio was. He would watch him play. And that didn't make him flinch as far as his affinity for the Dodgers was concerned. Spending time with Joe D didn't make him flinch. And obviously the Dodgers left after 57. And... He watched the Yankees when there was no one else to watch, but he never rooted because he just didn't have an interest. And then the second the Mets came around in 62, 
he latched on, and his Dodgers fandom just translated right over to the Mets. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. It was, it was an easy transition. So, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you've heard so many stories. Uh, what's one that really jumps out to you about uh, Brooklyn and the Dodgers? One that jumps out is the fact that he was at Yankee Stadium when the Dodgers won the World Series in 55. And wow. This is, he would tell this all the time. And like I said, he was a soft-spoken guy, but every once in a while he would start throwing stories out there. And one of his favorites is that he was there. He was in the stands when it happened. And a lot of the time he would tell it in front of my father, and my father would get aggravated because he was born in 1950, and he never went to Ebbets Field, which means he was seven years old the last season of Ebbets Field, and my grandfather never took him. I'm not sure why my grandfather never took him. I'm guessing it's just because he thought it was, it was not a place for a kid that young at that time, which my father regrets never going to Ebbets Field. He went to the Polo Grounds when the Mets started playing there in 62, but never Ebbets Field. But my grandfather would tell stories of Gil Hodges, tell stories of, of Carl Ferrillo. He, he had this way of, even though he was soft-spoken, when he, when he did speak and when he did open up, it was just an amazing story. And, you know, he loved the Dodgers and he loved the Mets. And the only other things that he loved as much as the Dodgers and the Mets were his family. So, you know, it was, in, in many ways, he was a simple guy, but he was also, you know, very, very down-to-earth. He was, he was the most reliable person I ever met. Well, it's, it's great to hear. You can hear the passion you have for him and, and how much love you have for him uh, in your voice when you speak about him. It, it's uh, pretty outstanding. And um, when uh, I, I, I'm just losing exactly where I was going to go, but um, I, I, I guess my, my first thought about it is, is what, what, what do you see, you know, in your fan uh, fandom for the Mets right now, what do you see – uh, in terms of the, the Brooklyn Dodgers' legacy? A lot of it has to do with loyalty. A lot of it has to do with passion. A lot of it has to do with sitting through and dealing with a lot of crap. And obviously anybody who follows the Dodgers knows that the only championship they won was in 55. But they were close so many other times. In the mid-40s, in the late-40s, in the early-50s, they were close. And it's also the fact that with the way the Dodgers fans and the Yankee fans got along or didn't get along, that's kind of the way that Mets fans and Yankee fans don't get along or didn't get along. You know, the Dodgers were in the NL while the Yankees were in the AL. The Mets are in the NL while the Yankees are in the AL. So there's a lot of parallels to be drawn there. And it's the same, it's, I think it's the same type of fan base, the same type of person generally roots for the Mets that rooted for the Dodgers. And a lot of that is because a lot of people are like me who had their fandom passed down from their grandfather to their father to them or directly from their grandfather. And there's a lot of Giants fans who also had that fandom passed down because it's a National League, it's a National League town. But, you know, that's not to say that there aren't diehard Yankee fans because there obviously are. But it just seems that people who root for the Mets, for the most part, are diehards. And you're a diehard because it's, it's, not, it's not easy. It's easy to be a Yankee fan. It's easy to have a team that has a payroll of $215 million and makes the playoffs every single year, and they're going to spend on everybody, and they're going to trade 
their entire farm system to land Randy Johnson or whoever the key guy is that year. But it's not fun, and it doesn't have the same type of, of reward as what it's going to be like when we watch the Mets finally win a World Series, which is just like I can imagine it felt when they watched the Dodgers finally win the World Series after so many years of failing and, and being in the shadow. But, you know, that's, that's what it's about, though. It's about, it's about the fandom. It's not about results year after year. It really isn't. I would love to see the Mets win the World Series every year. I would love to see them in contention every year. But it's, most teams, it just doesn't happen. And, you know, the way my, fa- my, my grandfather dealt with disappointment and stuck through it all to stay with the Dodgers, that's kind of the way I'm dealing with it and sticking through to stay with the Mets. And if he hadn't, you know, brought me up that way to have that type of uh, loyalty to the to the team, then I don't I don't really know if I would still be rooting for them. Seriously. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially during this time, and and uh, we'll get a little bit more into uh, the current uh, state of the Mets and, and also uh, just this whole era that we've uh, just been going through. But I, I I'm remembering again what I was going to ask you, and and. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people, there's a good chunk of people, maybe not the diehards, but there's a good chunk of people who don't know that the Dodgers and the Giants used to be in New York City. But that was generally in your consciousness as you were growing up, considering your grandfather and considering how much baseball meant to him. Right. And, you know, he pretty much never really talked about the the Giants. It was it was always Dodgers. It was always Mets. It was always Dodgers Yankees. So I'm guessing he didn't have many friends who who rooted for the Giants. I know there were there were lots of vocal Giants fans in New York during that time. A lot of them in Brooklyn, where my grandfather was. But you know, obviously, I knew that it was a three team town. That it was the Dodgers. That it was the Giants. That it was the Yankees. But he didn't really have much of much of a thought about the Giants. Um, even though, obviously, the Dodgers and the Giants had a great rivalry, he, he really didn't talk about 1951 a lot, and I can probably guess why he didn't talk about 1951, and he really never talked about 1954. But, you know, in his, in his own way, he would talk about Willie Mays, and he would say, you know, Willie Mays, what a hitter, and, you know, what, what an outstanding player. But that was pretty much as, as deep as he got into the Giants, talking about Willie Mays and, and that they were in the, same, in the same city as the Dodgers and the Yankees at the same time. And, uh, yeah, it, it never really got much deeper than that for him. Hmm. Now, that's interesting. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, I, I guess you don't know where he was, you know, when Bobby Thompson hit that home run, considering he didn't talk about it too much. <laughs> right. I do not know where he was. Uh, I'm imagining he was probably either working or home. That's right. that's what I'm guessing. He had lots of he had lots of jobs. He was a milkman at times. He was a carpenter. He worked at the post office. So most likely he was at work or home when that happened. But yeah, just I'm thinking about it now, and he never ever mentioned 1951. It's wow, it's actually pretty crazy. I would <laughs> I would like to go back and be able to ask him, you know, what the hell were you thinking when that happened? Especially <laughs> right. because, I mean, Jen- because yeah, and, and during during his lifetime, he learned that they were stealing signs. So that probably pissed right. him off even more. After after 1951 happened, he learned they were stealing signs the whole time, and yeah, that that would really aggravate me if I was in issues. Yeah, exactly. It it, it it's it is the way it is, you know. And and um, uh, it 
it's hard to, to say. I think it, it brings up the fact that there's always cheating in the game. Every, every area is quote-unquote tainted and, uh, you know, just reminds me about what we're going through with the steroids and how I, I wish people would think about it in, in that kind of way a little bit more instead of just blocking every, like, an entire chunk of people out from an entire area of baseball. Right. There's always, there's always been ways to, to improve. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and I think even going back into the 50s and going on to the 80s, players were using speed. They were popping it every day in the dugout, and they were drinking milk to, to calm themselves back down. And, you know, this is something that obviously there's a difference between taking uppers and being able to wake up for a 1 o'clock game or a 12 o'clock game than sticking horse tranquilizers in, in your body or taking HGH or, or just using all types of metabolic stuff. But there's always something relative to be, to be spoken about. And there's even rumors that Babe Ruth used <laughs> certain crazy ways to, to enhance his power in the 20s and in the 30s. But, you know, that, that's not to say that steroids are okay. I don't, I don't think it's okay. But right. there's, there's, always, there's always been an advantage the players are looking for. And even though I'm not a fan of Barry Bonds, he's right when he says, you know, the, the, most people say that the reason he started using was to catch up. You know, he saw Mark McGuire and he saw Sammy Sosa, and they were the talk of baseball, and he was – a better player than both of them. He was a well-rounded player. He was incredible. And that's around the time, if you listen to the reports and, and you read everything about it, that's around the time he started using. So he did it to catch up to other people, even though he took it a step too far. He got pretty crazy with it. He did it because others were doing it, and he felt like if they were benefiting from it, he should benefit from it too. But, you know, it's good that baseball is cleaning it up now, even though they still need to have some, some better testing in place in order to make sure that this really is straighten that properly. Agreed, agreed. It's uh, obviously a little bit of a, a tangent to, to go on, but it certainly is relevant uh, nonetheless. And uh, going back to Brooklyn, you would consider yourself a Brooklyn aficionado, am I, am I correct? Absolutely. So what are some of your favorite spots in Brooklyn? Some of my favorite spots. There's, there's a really, really cool museum downtown called the Brooklyn Historical Society that a lot of people from the neighborhood and people who don't live here do not know about. And I haven't been there in a while, but when I was there, they had some really awesome stuff from Ebbets Field. They had the 55 championship banner. They had seats from Ebbets Field. And they also had the original set from the Honeymooners. So you can go in there and you can see the Cramden's table, the front door, the dresser, uh, the icebox, the sink. And it's some pretty awesome stuff. Obviously, being from Bay Ridge, if you go down by Shore Road, Shore Road is when you come over the Verrazano Bridge from Staten Island, it's what you see. It's all along Shore Road. There's parks there that go from 100th Street all the way down to the 69th Street Pier, and there's three high schools there. There's Fompon, which is all girls. There's Fort Hamilton High School in Zavarian, where I went. And it's a great spot to go. People go down there to ride their bikes, uh, to just hang out, sit on the sit on the benches and watch the sunset. And... Back a few years ago, they used to have barges out there for the Macy's fireworks display, and you could go down the shore road and watch that, the same thing you would see in the city, but they don't have it anymore. Um, you know, there's great places in Bay Ridge. If you go to Bay Ridge and you like going out to eat and you like drinking beer and partying, there is a uh, string of bars and restaurants probably about a mile and a half long from 70th Street to 100th Street, and you can go there on any Friday or Saturday and pretty much bounce around uh, anywhere. 
Um, obviously, Coney Island is fantastic. It was a little bit rough for a while, but since the Cyclones have been there, it's coming back. And the Cyclone, the original Cyclone, is still there. The Wonder Wheel is still there. And now they've got lots of other stuff popping up. So there's so many awesome spots in Brooklyn. A lot of people might identify it because of the hipsters that are invading the borough. Uh, but, you know, the spots where they hang out are cool, too. But I usually, I usually hang out in the places I grew up in. Right, right out there. I mean, obviously, you know, I've been to Bay Ridge, but obviously it's a little bit of a trek for, for uh, people who don't live out there. But, uh, you know, I've had some friends who, who have uh, settled down there at certain points in their lives. And, and uh, besides the fact that when I was living in Brooklyn, I, I would like to explore all sorts of different spots uh, on my bike. And uh, one, one day, I, I uh, you know, several years ago, I decided to uh, take a sick day and and uh, it, it, it was really interesting because I, I biked down to Bay Ridge, and I, I guess I came. Um, I'm trying to think of what street it is where there's a park right before uh, there's a pier that goes off. And I guess it's like 65th Street. You probably know what I'm talking about, right? I think you're Around, talking like, about Owl's Head. Owl's Head Park is yeah, okay. in the mid 60s, going up towards the pier by right. uh, by Shore Road. Yep. Right. Exactly. And so, so the day that I did that, though. It was extremely foggy, and, and it, was, it looked really cool, but I didn't get to see the city the way the view probably looks from that spot. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of on a hill, that park. So when, right. it's clear, uh, when it's clear, the view is pretty, it's pretty incredible from there. Yeah, so, so I, can put, I know what you're talking about when, when you're mentioning all those, those bars and, and whatnot. I, I, I certainly uh, appreciate Bay Ridge and the uh, and everybody out there, if you haven't explored Brooklyn, you, sh- you certainly should start with Bay Ridge. It's, it's uh, fantastic. It, it's a great community, and um, it's Brooklyn. Um, going to modern baseball, uh, you know, we have the, uh, the 2014 New York Mets, and obviously you and I, uh, uh, we, we blog about it uh, constantly, and you're the site editor of Rising Apple, and, and what a fine job you do uh, for all of those who, who are Mets fans and haven't, uh, reviewed Rising Apple too much. You got to go on there. Uh, we got podcasts uh, galore as well over on uh, every Wednesday. Um, so the Mets are turning the corner. What, what, are, what are your uh, What are your thoughts on this 2014 campaign? Well, in our season prediction piece that that went live earlier this week, I had them at 82 and 80, and I pretty much think that that's where they're going to wind up. Um, you know, the last the last few days have kind of put a bad taste in my mouth just because of the whole. Henry Mejia against Dice K situation and the Juan Lagares against Eric Young Jr. situation. And, you know, what I see are two very, very simple decisions the Mets have to make that for some reason or another they're making very, very difficult. And, you know, I know that a lot of the time the team that breaks camp is not the same team that is on the field in a week or a month, but I would still like to see Lagares in center field every day. I, I want to see Mejia as a fifth starter. This is a season when they're not expected to contend, but they're expected to build towards contention. So I want to see people who have upside. I want to see people who might be here when the team seriously threatens to win a world championship. And to me, uh, it's very easy to make the call for Lagares in center field and Mejia in the rotation. Do you think they've gotten too used to having the debate of whether you know, Roberto Hernandez should be at second base or whatever, Louis, Louis Hernandez, you, you know, just the, 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 the players that we generally don't hear about on other teams, 
because the Mets' talent was so thin for a while. Do you think they, they've gotten too used to, this, like, having to make these types of decisions? I think so. And, you know, this year especially, they've got three guys at first base. They have Ike Davis, they have Lucas Duda, they have Josh Satin. And everybody was expecting them to have to only go with one because Ike Davis was on his way out the door. He was going to be traded. It was a foregone conclusion. Well, now he's still here. And on top of the fact that he's here, both him and Duda were hurt during spring training, so they couldn't decide. And now they're both on the roster, along with Satin. So your bench is weak because you have one guy on there, whoever's not starting between Davis and Duda. You're going to have somebody who's completely you know, just not a versatile guy. And you've got platoon situations in the outfield. You have a platoon situation um, developing. I don't know what's developing short. You have Ruben Tejada there, but he really shouldn't be starting, let alone on the roster. So, you know, I'm. It's it's really hard to, you know, convey what my pulse is right now. I I love what they've done as far as Grandison. I love the Cologne signing. I've come around on the Chris Young signing. I think Familia's in for a big year. Syndergaard and Montero are going to be up soon. It's going to be great. But if they would have just upgraded shortstop, like you said, that they've become too reliant on making these decisions. You know, who do we go with? And it's and it's two bad options that they're always considering. And right. if they would have just shored up shortstop, it would have been a lot a lot different going into the year. What would you like them to have done? If it were me, uh, I probably would have pulled the trigger on a deal for either Nick Franklin or Didi Gregorius. I know a lot of people think that Gregorius might not be much of an upgrade over Tejada, but he's a wizard with the glove. So just defensively, he would have been a tremendous upgrade. And he also has pop. So even though his on-base might not be that high and his average might not be that high, he's somebody who has plus pop and plays plus defense. Nick Franklin is somebody who, as the offseason went on, people started saying, well, he's not much better than Wilmer Flores but he is because pretty much every scout says the Flores can't play short. Every scout pretty much says that Franklin can play short. So that's what I would have done. And you've got both of those guys who look like they're going to open the year in AAA, one for the Diamondbacks, one for the Mariners. And you still have Stephen Drew sitting out there. And the last thing I want the Mets to do is acquiesce to Boris's demands and give him something crazy. But you have to wonder, at, at this point, can you get him for one year and $10 million? Can you get him for two years and, and 21 or $22 million? I still kind of have a sneaking suspicion they're going to upgrade shortstop because I just can't. I, I can't believe that they would let Tejada run with the position. I don't think Flores is the answer, and obviously Quintanilla isn't the answer either. And ironically, Ruben Tejada is currently up at bat as we speak. Um, he is up at bat. It is 191 average. Yep, yes, yep he is. There, there he is. There he is. Uh, this this entire era in in the span when uh, you know in the span of National League New York baseball, um, you know obviously the, we've heard many stories about Brooklyn and the Dasinus boys and the Giants obviously uh, you know they were they were pretty uh, pretty bad when they they had to leave uh, you know the Dodgers were a a, a, a uh, you know the best selling franchise in baseball and the Giants were unfortunately floundering. Um, but when, when looking at this last era, is, is it also, do you think that the reason it feels so devastating is because of the era we live in in terms of, of media coverage? Yeah, I do. And that's something that, that people don't talk about enough. And, you know, prior to Rising Apple, when pretty much all the pieces I wrote were opinion pieces, I wrote about this a lot. 
And a lot of what people think and a lot of what people express on Twitter or wherever they are comes from the beat writers. And if the beat writers are covering your team like it's a joke, the perception is going to be that your team is a joke. And prior to this year, I mean, it's calmed down a little bit, but, I mean, you, you would have Adam Rubin posting things that are pot shots against the team. You still have it happening today. Mike Puma does it a lot, pot shots against the Mets, even if it's something that the Mets didn't do wrong, something that they shouldn't be getting fire for. They get fire. And people who are diehard fans who follow the team day in and day out and know the ins and outs of everything that's going on, it won't impact them. But people who are more fair-weather fans or people who just don't follow as closely, when they read an article that bashes the Mets, they're not going to want to go out to the ballpark to watch a team that they think is a joke. And a lot of it is spun by the media. A lot of it is exacerbated because of Twitter. And even today, if, if, you, if you're watching the game and you're on Twitter today, you have the writers overreacting to pretty much everything that happens, and you have fellow Mets fans who are getting worried about how the team looks in, in spring training. They're worried that David Wright is hitting 218 in spring training. It's all, there's a lot of emphasis on stuff that wouldn't even get coverage five years ago or ten years ago. And going back to the 50s, nobody knew pretty much anything that was going on between games. It was a game and that was it. Right. Exactly. It, it's a perfect point to make. And uh, with that, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end, and obviously uh, you have some Mets to cover uh, today. So uh, we do this over on Rising Apple, uh, and uh, I'll ask you uh, to give your last word. Uh, whatever you, you want to give when it comes to the Mets, the Dodgers, Brooklyn, uh, baseball, uh, go ahead, Danny, your last word. Last words are National League town, and this is obviously perfect for this podcast and, and perfect in general, I think, for what we're doing with the Mets also. And I just remember in 2006 uh, when the Mets were on the cusp of what everybody thought was going to be a World Series appearance, this town was a Mets town. It was a National League town. And everybody who grew up in this city, anybody who had somebody who was a Dodgers fan growing up or a Giants fan growing up, knows that New York City is a National League town knows that the second the Mets are great again, the place is going to be incredible and it's going to be just the most amazing thing they've ever witnessed. And I cannot wait for the time when the Mets are back on top and we can finally experience what our relatives experienced in the 40s and 50s because it's going to be incredible. Completely agree. Thank you so much for coming on, Danny, giving us your Brooklyn insight, your Mets insight, and always a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Have a great Saturday. Take care.